Hello, and welcome to Brickagium. My name is Brenna Gresco McTiernan. There is a hyphen in there. <laughs> I was born with it. And I'm going to be your host for this podcast as I discuss with you some of my own experiences into the strange and unusual, and then uh, delve into some of the research that I've looked into in attempts to quantify and understand these experiences a little bit better. Um, I'm not an expert, guys. Uh, my degrees are in English and history. And while I have researched some of these subjects out of personal interest and ad nauseum, I've done so as a layman who was interested in them. So if you're interested in these subjects, please use the information I'm giving you as a jumping board to explore your own research into these subjects. I think it's really important to keep a critical mind um, when discussing some of these strange, weird things. Uh, before I delve in too far, I want to say a big shout of gratitude to Hilary Zozula for creating the beautiful art for my podcast. She really incorporated a lot of symbols that are very near and dear to my own heart. Um, if you want to check out an incredibly talented illustrator who works in realms of uh, symbolism and myth, go check her out at Hilary Zozula, Z-O-Z-U-L-A, on Instagram. She's amazing. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background into who I am and why I have the mindset that I do uh, before I just delve into this. Um, I'm not a scientist, as I said, my degrees are in English and history, but I was raised by scientists. My mom studied chemistry and molecular biology, and uh, my dad studied developmental biology and DNA replication. So from a young age and under their influence and spending many hours in labs and museums, I developed a really deep reverence and respect for science, um, the empirical method, doing research, and uh, attempting to keep and open an objective mind when being presented with new information. I also had a really unique spiritual upbringing. So my parents were both raised Catholic and my siblings and I were all born into the Catholic church, but we left the church at a very young age. And instead of adhering to any one specific faith or organized religion, my mom spearheaded our spiritual studies and we learned lots of different faiths, religions, and myths from around the world. She did this for two different reasons. I think her primary reason of doing this was so that in learning all these different stories and beliefs and myths, we could see that they shared a lot of symmetries. The mechanics of their worship, the rules to their practices may be very, very different. But in between them, they shared a lot of these germs of quote unquote truths to them. And I think she wanted us to see that. Um, the second reason she did it is I think that she really, I know actually, she really wanted us, her children, to be able to choose what we wanted to believe um, as spiritual creatures. Um, we were allowed to adhere to one faith if we wanted to. Uh, and we were allowed to take bits and pieces of different faiths and religions and create our own philosophy if we wanted to. And it was always acceptable to be agnostic or listen to these stories and beliefs and be completely atheistic and say, you know, those are beautiful stories, but that's all that they are. 
In my current life, I'd say that I adhere to beliefs connected to um, paganism, mysticism, and uh, Gnosticism. Now, not limited to those three, but those are three that I've found I really identify with um, throughout the course of my life. In this first episode, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my own possible experiences with reincarnation and concerning a family legend with my little brother involved, and uh, then delve into some of the really fascinating but seldom talked research of Dr. Ian Stevenson. So before I launch into you guys, I'm not trying to convert convince or offend anybody by what I'm talking about. So if this vibrates with you, join me on this weird ride. If it does not, please don't listen. That's totally fine. I take zero offense. Um, I'm going to be referencing some information that I found from a couple different sources for this article in the podcast. Um, And that's going to be Wikipedia, mythencyclopedia.com, and uh, three separate articles on Ian Stevenson. He's written a lot of books, but I'm referencing these three articles. And that's a New York Times article by David Wallace, a uh, Scientific American blog by Jesse Baring, and a J.B. Tucker article on uh, the Journal of Scientific Exploration. So, reincarnation, really boiled down. really boiled down, is based on the belief that the soul continues to exist after bodily death and can transmigrate or move into another living thing. This can be another person, an animal, or even a plant. It really depends on the belief system. The concept of reincarnation is probably most readily associated with the religions and beliefs that developed out of the Indus River Valley in Northwest India. And these major players that you're probably familiar with are Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, and Buddhism. Now, in addition to those ancient faiths, reincarnation is also referenced in ancient Egypt, as well as Greece, And it was incorporated into the beliefs of the early Christian sects. It was only written out as a heretical belief by the Catholic Orthodoxy after about the first 500 years of the religion being developed. Reincarnation is also found in the beliefs of the Aboriginals of Australia, the cultures of the Zulu of Southern Africa, and the Yoruba and Idu of Western Africa, as well as being found in the indigenous beliefs of tribes through the Pacific Northwest, Canada, and Alaska. Now, I'm not going to get into the beliefs and mechanisms of how or why reincarnation occurs between these different cultures because they vary wildly. I'm just going to draw attention to the fact that the belief in reincarnation is found around the globe and throughout our human history. Um, My personal interests in reincarnation come from uh, two points in my life. The first, which is my own personal one, was a really strange obsession that I had uh, between the ages of about two and three and a half, in which I was obsessed with my horse. Now, I didn't have a horse. (laughs) 
but I talked about my horse. I babbled about it constantly. I would ask about it. Uh, I would dream about it. And I would get really, really upset and agitated that I couldn't see my horse and I would ask where it was and I didn't understand uh, why I wasn't with my horse anymore. Now, this obsession kind of reached an apex and uh, my mom was worried about my sanity, I think, a little bit. And so she eventually got a book on different horse breeds out from the library because I think she figured that at least if I could see what type of horse I was talking about, that it would be less upsetting. So I remember going through this book with her and pointing at all the pictures and I was like, no, 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 that's my horse. That's the type of horse I have. And it was an Appaloosa horse, which was uh, an American breed that was most uh, famously known as being um, bred and refined by the Nez Perce tribe from Idaho. Now, did I have a horse in a previous incarnation? I have no idea. Um, kids can fixate on really weird things. Um, it is interesting to note though, that I wasn't allowed to really watch TV when I was a little kid. And I was born into metropolitan Cleveland. So we did not have a horse. Nobody in my family or extended family had horses. Uh, and none of my friends had horses. So it was a very particular thing to fixate on. Um, I will say in all honesty that uh, every time that I've taken in and adopted a pet and hung out with them for a while, there's like this bubbling up from my unconscious <laughs> that always comes to mind. And I'm like, are you my horse? It's very strange. Now my brother's uh, story is a little bit more direct and succinct, uh, short, but uh, a little weird. And as that story goes, uh, my mom was feeding my little brother lunch when he was about two and a half. And she had him at the kitchen table. And while she's feeding him, she's going over Bible parables. Like I said, she herself was raised Catholic. So she's going over the parable of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And she's simplifying it for him because he's two. And she's saying, um, you should be kind to people if you want them to be kind to you in return. And he says, I know this already. Back before, when I was older, I wasn't nice to people and they didn't like it. I get it. And my mom was flabbergasted. <laughs> Years later, when uh, we were learning about concepts of reincarnation, and this became a family legend, uh, I remember asking her why she didn't press him for more information on what he was talking about. Who was he? Uh, what did he mean before when he was older? And she said her reasoning was really twofold. One, she was so surprised and shocked by his matter of fact admission that she just sat there in silence as he was eating his lunch. And as she really started formulating the implications of this statement and wanted to ask him more questions, she ultimately didn't want to upset her two-year-old. Two-year-olds are fickle creatures. They get upset about anything and everything. They're like the worst drunk you've ever met. Um, she figured that if he wanted to talk about it uh, and he brought it up again, she would explore it with him more, um, but he never did. Uh, to date, 
my little brother is now in his 30s and he has no recollection of this happening. He doesn't doubt my mom that it did happen. He just has no memory of it, no memories of past life, no weird stuff about it. Um, it was just a really interesting family legend. So with that, let's get into the fascinating work of Dr. Ian Stevenson. Dr. Ian Stevenson was a Canadian-born U.S. psychiatrist, and he is credited with being one of the most prolific researchers into the reincarnation phenomena to date, especially noted for his research into the documentation of uh, case studies concerning children's accounts and their claims to remember past lives. Stevenson was a successful mainstream scientist. He worked for the University of Virginia School of Medicine for 50 years, and he served as chair of psychiatry and neurology for a decade between 1957 and 1967. His interest in reincarnation and the fact that it became the primary focus of his career happened almost by chance. In 1958, while holding the position of chair of psychiatry, Stevenson entered into a contest that was held by the American Society for Psychical Research in honor of William James, who is considered to be the father of American psychology. Um, and it was the contest for the best essay on, and bear with me guys, <laughs> the topic of paranormal mental phenomena and their relationship to the problem of survival of the human personality after bodily death, <laughs> AKA reincarnation. So Stevenson later in his life said that his interest into the subject of reincarnation stemmed from a discontent with how human personality was explained um, or attempted to be explained through psychoanalysis behaviorism, or even neuroscience alone. He thought that there could be other factors involved with personality and thought that reincarnation could be one of them. So when the contest was announced, Stevenson entered into it and he submitted a detailed analysis of 44 possible cases for reincarnation that he had come across in his own readings and research. Um, looked over them and analyzed them. And in the conclusion of his paper, he stated that further research into the reincarnation hypothesis was warranted. And he requested that anyone who knew of other additional possible cases of reincarnation to contact him. Um, at the time, Stevenson himself was not intending to conduct case studies into reincarnation. He was busy running his department, treating patients, and uh, conducting other research. But that essay really forever changed the trajectory of his career. Um, Stevenson's essay won the contest, and uh, his paper on reincarnation was subsequently published and distributed in 1960. Soon after the publication was distributed, um, he was contacted by a woman named Eileen Garrett. 
Now, Eileen Garrett is an interesting person in herself, uh, and she was considered to be a psychic and a medium, but she contacted Dr. Stevenson as head of the newly formed Parapsychology Foundation. She had received uh, news, uh, information, a letter, of a possible case of reincarnation, similar to the ones that Stevenson had analyzed in his paper in India. And she offered to pay for his travel and research expenses if he would be willing to investigate the claim himself. And Stevenson, being interested in the subject, agreed. So in the time that he spent planning the trip to go to India, they were actually informed of a few additional cases, some in uh, India and then a couple more in nearby Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. Uh, but by the time that Stevenson arrived in India, he was blown away with the prevalence of reincarnation and how many cases were presented to him. In his four weeks in India, he investigated uh, 25 separate cases, and then he investigated seven more in a week spent in Ceylon. Once he got back from his trip, he was contacted by a woman named Louisa Ryan, whose husband, J.B. Ryan, was uh, the head of the parapsychology lab at the Duke University. And they had been informed of possible cases of reincarnation in Alaska. So Stevenson packed up his bags again and flew to Alaska and interviewed numerous cases, probable of reincarnation, with the Klingit tribe of Southern Alaska. Now, at this point, um, I think it's important to mention uh, Ian Stevenson's uh, financial supporter and someone who actually ended up really uh, funding his research, and that is Chester Carlson. Chester Carlson was an American physicist and the creator of the electrophotography system that later became the Xeroxing process and hence Xeroxing Corporation. Um, he was considered to be one of the wealthiest men in the United States in the 1960s. Carlson uh, had become interested in Stevenson's work into the possibility of life after death and concepts of reincarnation after his wife Doris had introduced him to uh, his research from the uh, 1960s publication um, concerning, the, concerning the first 44 cases he analyzed. Um, and Carlson offered money towards Stevenson's research. Now, Stevenson initially turned down Carlson's support. I think as the story goes, he uh, only accepted enough money to buy a tape recorder to record his case studies. But as uh, Stevenson's research started expanding, he started accepting more um, monetary support from Chester Carlson. In 1966, Stevenson published a book titled 22 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, in which he was going over the cases or most promising cases that he had studied in India, Ceylon, Brazil, Alaska, and Lebanon. Um, now, in his book, uh, he went over extensive and painstaking efforts to determine exactly what the children had claimed, um, how well their statements uh, matched 
the lives or the individuals they were uh, thought to remember. The publication included charts, interviews, and informant accounts. Um, and Stevenson presented the information with a really objective, even-handed manner. He weighed the strengths and weaknesses of each case he presented. Now, his 22 cases was met with some accolade, but was generally ignored by the scientific community at large. But Stevenson was not to be deterred. He'd seen too much. So in 1967, he chose to step down from his position of chair of psychiatry and neurology and uh, opted to set up a small division which uh, still is in existence to this day at the University of Virginia School of Medicine titled the Division of Perceptual Studies. In 1968, Chester Carlson passed away and he left a million dollars to the University of Virginia specifically for Stevenson's research. Now, a million dollars today is still a lot of money. I wouldn't shake a stick at it. But in 1968, it was like the equivalent of seven and a half million dollars. So Chester Carlson effectively ended up funding Stevenson's research um, for the rest of his you know, time spent researching the phenomena of uh, reincarnation. So let's talk about some of the interesting things that Stevenson seemed to find. One of the things he uh, seemed to find in investigating all these cases of these children was that most children who recalled or seemed to recall memories of their previous lives did so at a very young age. They usually would talk about it between the ages that they would begin to talk, um, so around one and a half to two, um, to about four years old. Um, he seemed to find that these memories and uh, the details they tended to seem to remember tended to dissipate between the ages of about five to eight. In a lot of these cases, uh, the children seemed to recall most the manner of their death and their previous incarnation, um, which were often, but not always, uh, sudden or violent deaths. Um, in a, a percentage of these children, they seem to have the habit of uh, mimicking play of an occupation that they had had in their previous life. Um, uh, and in some of these cases, he found a correlation with phobias that the children seemed to uh, have or express in, uh, in relation to the mode of their death in their previous life. There was a girl who he interviewed from Sri Lanka who apparently had an extreme fear of water from a very early age. Uh, apparently, even as a newborn, she, it took almost three people to get her in a bath. And then by about the age of about six months old, she started exhibiting uh, very uh, fearful tendencies towards buses. Um, and when she became of speaking age, she recounted the experience of a girl who lived in a distant village who had been walking down a narrow road with flooded paddy fields on either side and she had jumped out of the way of a bus that was rushing by and fell into one of these flooded fields and drowned. Now most of these phobias that he came across tended to fade out with time as well. Not always but most of the time. Um, 
Some of these kids talked about other stuff. They would speak of their previous families, children, or spouses, um, which is really weird because this would be like little kids being upset and concerned about their children that they had left behind and worrying about them and you know worrying if they were gonna be okay. Um, there were some uh, awkward occurrences of birth families taking an insistent child who recalled or seemed to recall the town or village that they had come from um, to that village only to uh, in fact discover that the family the child seemed to remember actually did live there. And in many of these times, the child was able to recall personal intimate details that only a family member would be able to know. Uh, it became awkward occasionally because the children would wanna stay with their previous family and not return home with their birth family. Uh, a really creepy occurrence that happened uh, and that was documented was uh, small children who had claimed to have been murdered um, being exposed, surprised, exposed suddenly to the individual who they claimed to have murder, been murdered by. And in a couple of cases, there were really visceral responses on the children's behalf uh, in attempts to attack uh, the people who they had claimed to have murdered them. I'm not making this up, guys. This is actually documented in some of his work. Uh, one of the interesting and frequent correlations that Stevenson seemed to find was a correlation between birthmarks, birth defects, and uh, unusual deformities, some of them not easily described by um, medical uh, issues, that seemed to correlate with injuries that the previous incarnation had suffered. Stevenson uh, published a book, one of his later ones in 1997, called Reincarnation in Biology, A Contribution to the Etiology of Birthmarks and Birth Defects. And in that book, he presents evidence for 225 separate cases uh, documenting uh, the marks and claims of the children, and then uh, painstakingly acquiring uh, autopsy reports, police reports, or uh, eyewitness testimonials when those weren't available to correlate uh, these claims and see where these marks, defects, um, and wounds, or you know, weird marks, actually did seem to match the person the child claimed to remember. Um, Stevenson's research and theories were, in his time, not wildly accepted by the scientific communities, but his work and his research was really hard to argue against. He actually kind of became known as the debunker of debunkers because of the extensive data he had collected, interviewing some 3,000 cases by the time of his retirement. And uh, moreover, by the objective and even-handed nature of the presentation of the information he was collecting. Uh, Stevenson did have advocates in his work, uh, one of which was uh, Eugene Brody. So Eugene Brody was the editor of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Conditions, 
and he published an article by Stevenson in 1977, which led to the request of additional prints by thousands of scientists from around the world. Brody later dedicated almost an entire issue of his publication to Stevenson's research and works. Harold Leaf, uh, a well-known psychiatrist himself, often said of Stevenson's work, quote, either he is making a colossal mistake or he will be known as the Galileo of the 20th century, end quote. Now, Stevenson himself never really theorized um, upon the mechanics or cause for reincarnation. He focused almost exclusively on compiling data and verifiable accounts that reincarnation was in fact taking place. He joked later in his life, uh, towards the end of his career, that he was going to die a failure because he had been unable to convince the scientific community at large of the validity and existence of reincarnation. Uh, one of his last publications, he ended with, quote, let no one think I know the answer. I am still seeking, end quote. Uh, I encourage anyone interested in the subject of reincarnation to look into his research. He was a dedicated, uh, passionate scientist and doctor and spent his life researching this phenomena and compiling data on the subjects, but it's very seldom spoken of um, in many communities. <laughs> uh, but I just want to say, circling back to the concept of his work being compared to Galileo, whether you're aware of this or not, Galileo died on house arrest. His research and theories were suppressed and ignored. He was deemed a heretic by the Roman Inquisition. Now, I'm definitely not comparing the scientific community at large to the Roman Inquisition, but I will say that paradigm shifts often take time to take hold. New views and concepts, especially ones contradictory to the ones held by the old system of belief, take time before they're widely accepted and blossom into uh, acceptance and fruition. It was almost a hundred years after Galileo's death before the Copernican revolution took hold as common scientific belief. So perhaps Ian Stevenson will yet be credited as the Galileo of the 20th century as we move into the 21st. Time will tell. Um, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell, guys. Ian Stevenson, fascinating researcher who we've probably not heard much about. I totally encourage you to go check him out. Um, next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about prophetic dreams, um, Einstein's concept of time, a little bit about human consciousness, and then talk a little bit about the life and works of the sleeping prophet himself, Edgar Cayce. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there.